Do you find it difficult to share your faith? Are you having a hard time boldly proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ to those around you, whether it be your school, your family, or your work? Well, on today's podcast, we're launching a new study in 1 Thessalonians, and we will learn how we as Christians can go out there and boldly share the love of Jesus Christ to the world. So let's get into it. Well, hey there, my friends. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. So blessed to be with you guys as always. This is podcast 185, and I'm excited that we're going to be starting a new study in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So really the topic at hand, the series that we're going to be covering for the next episode, a few episodes that is, is being grateful for the faith of others. Now, one of the things that I've found through the years, not just in my own personal walk, but as a pastor and a Christian apologist, is boy, oh boy, when we have a difficulty sharing our faith, oftentimes we don't have people in our lives or have made the effort or the investment, quite frankly, of people who are actually doing that. And when we don't have that type of pull, that influence, uh, you will find that uh, the vast majority of us will have a difficult time or will share our faith less to those around us. So it is so important, you guys, for us to be grateful for the people that God has placed in our lives who are demonstrating, being an example, being an encourager, and how to go about sharing your faith. And that's what they were going to be seeing throughout the entire letter here in 1 Thessalonians is a group of Christians in Thessalonica and beyond who were boldly sharing their faith. So what I want to do is I'm going to give you guys a quick little overview of the book as we typically do here on the podcast to help you guys understand uh, just the background. So that that will put things in proper context because as you guys know, this podcast is designed to give you guys a fresh um, and, and renewing perspective of scripture as we chronologically go through the Bible. So if you've missed any previous podcast, Check them out, standstrawministries.org. There are my notes or wherever you get your podcast. If this is your first time jumping in and you've missed those things, take advantage of that. Welcome to this podcast. I pray that this will be an enriching time for you, that you'll be encouraged in God's word because we need Christians who are grounded in God's word. And I, I encourage you guys, hopefully a lot on this podcast, to do just that. So thank you for taking the time Whatever you're doing, working out, driving the car, going to sleep, or just chilling in, a, in your comfortable chair, listening to this podcast, I pray that as we dive into 1 Thessalonians, that this will really just minister to you as it's been ministering to me for quite uh, some time now. I've been studying this book for several months now and almost finishing it. And so I just can't wait to kind of share what God has spoken to me And also, if you have been encouraged or there's some insight that you want to provide uh, myself or even our listeners that I can share, please send an email to info at standstrongministries.org. All right, having said all that, so our series at hand for this chapter is being grateful for the faith of others. Now, as we're teaching a chronological study, and if you've been with us for quite some time, you'll know that we just finished up Galatians. And again, my notes are available, so if you want to go back and get an overview of that letter. Now, most New Testament scholars on the conservative side, even some moderate to liberal, 
will pinpoint Galatians no earlier than AD 47 and no later than AD 49. And I tend to lean towards a later date uh, because of certain uh, events, major historical events that are not just perpetrated or demonstrated within the book of Acts that we th- we have through Luke, but also the account which Paul gives in Acts, or excuse me, in Galatians chapter one, that you can coincide within his first missionary journey to the council uh, that took place in Jerusalem in Acts 15. So that's important because here, First Thessalonians is about 80, 50 to 51. So I would say within a year after or a year plus after writing Galatians, Paul the Apostle is writing from Corinth, and you see this in Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 17. Now, the overview that we want to get into with the with Thessalonica, that city, it's named after the half-sister of Alexander the Great, and it's nestled on the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea, which is 200 miles north of Athens. Now, today, it is called Salonica or Thessaloniki, Uh, During the time of Paul, Thessalonica was a strategic and thriving seaport of Macedonia, which was at that time a Roman province. Now, the Bible knowledge commentary writes, the Ignatian Way, the the main Roman road from Rome to the Orient via Byzantium or the modern, which is known as modern Istanbul, it passed through the city. So this put Thessalonica in direct contact with, with many other important cities by land as well as by sea. It was one of the most important centers of population in Paul's day, occupying a strategic location, both governmentally and militarily, end quote. So that's significant because when you kind of get a backdrop, you understand in one sense why Paul targeted specific areas geographically. Uh, The main population in the city were native Greeks. Uh, There were Jews. There were Orientals, there were Romans uh, who made up the rest of the population. So this was a very strategic city, as, as the Bible Knowledge Commentary pointed out, that was a, a highway as well as a shipment uh, port that had a lot of connection strategically uh, within the Roman providence and beyond. And it was a great advancement of militaries uh, as well in and including the native Greeks and all the different diversity of ethnic groups and religions that were there. Now, archaeological discoveries have uncovered that this city um, was very highly involved in the practice of paganism. So there was a lot of uh, archaeological discoveries that show uh, models, um, idols of of deities such as Dionysus, uh, Demeter, Zeus, uh, a slip... uh, Asclepius, uh, Isis, Serapis, and Aphrodite. And there was also a large, and you can see pictures of this, and I think this is in reference to uh, the Jews, the God-fearing Greeks as well, that worshiped in the synagogues in Acts 17, verse 4, that's mentioned by Luke. There is a large synagogue that archaeologists have uncovered in that, in, in that city. And so on, this, on, on his second missionary journey, Paul, remember, along with Silas and Timothy, they arrived in Thessalonica. So remember, Galatians was on the hills of finishing his first missionary trip. And now he's writing this letter um, after being involved in ministering to Thessalonica. Remember, he departed from Philippi. And when he was passing through um, Amphibolus and uh, Apollonia, 
And so when you look at Acts chapter 17, verses one through nine, Paul at that time in his second missionary journey, he established a church and he stayed there and he preached. And now what's interesting about this letter, when Paul's writing, he actually, when you go back to Acts 17, there Luke mentions, and he doesn't do this very rarely actually, does he specify a given point of time? But he said that they stay there and Paul was preaching to the Thessalonians and he was also reasoning with the Jews for over three weeks in Acts 17 verses two through four. So not a whole lot of time that Paul had. And of course, eventually word spread of Paul's gospel message, which led to this, this riot that you'll see in the book of Acts 17 that broke out in the city and it caused Paul to be arrested. They were being abused. And we'll touch on that in, in a minute. Um, well, actually specifically in first Thessalonians chapter two, but Paul will mention those kind of things. And so what we'll do again, as, as we often hear on the podcast, you know, we'll jump around contextually to make sure that we're kind of piecing things together. Now, the, the real theme of this letter, so no matter what chapter or portion of scripture that we are in, the emphasis thematically is to remain holy until Christ returns. Because ultimately, remember, Paul had a very limited time with these Christians and they're, new, they're newfound Christians. This is, or I should say this, this is a newfound faith. So they were newbies, they're new Christians. So they were unfamiliar with so much. And now we didn't have systematic theology. We didn't have historical theology. We didn't have biblical theology like we have today. How things have been systematized. And we have terminology that we can use to unpack certain doctrines. And we have, you know, the totality of scripture at our disposal. They didn't have this at the time. And it took months on end for a communication such as a letter like this that was that was you know that would finally get to the people or the audience in this case the Thessalonians and so even after they had concerns and issues and they're being bombarded by other false teachers and the paganistic worship and they're spreading the gospel and they're receiving in their as a result were encountering people and receiving persecution who were opposed to them you know this letter was so meaningful but it was so timely and it is still to this day because it's the inspired word of God. So let's dive right in. And I'm going to read the first few sections here up to verse five. And, and in essence, what I want to be focusing on today, you know, with today's message in, in, in the, you know, again, in the, in the series of being grateful for the faith of others is how we extend grace and peace in the lives, in our lives to the lives of others. But also as Christians, and I love this because, and I wish we can unpack it even like do a whole like series, like several podcasts on this. This, 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 this word uh, that Paul uses that we'll see in a minute, chosen ones, this phrase referring to them as chosen ones. This is so unique because remember next to the, the book of Galatians, and this certainly was not being circulated in Thessalonica, these, this is stuff that they've never heard before. So we, we got to put that in perspective. But, you know, when you say that Jesus had these teachings, that there's reports that in evidence that he died and rose again, and they start learning about how he's the Messiah and his fulfillment of scripture. But this idea of being chosen by God, you know, and starting to hear about John 15, but that wasn't until later, you guys. This is 80, 50, 51. You know, the gospel of John doesn't come until... 30 years almost removed in some estimations. So this is new theological terminology, if you will, 
that they're that they're grappling with and trying to understand and that's just so powerful when you think about in the early development of the church these teachings that are coming out and we just take it for granted because we can go to a lexicon we could break down the greek we can do cross references and see this word chosen then you get the debates between the calvinists the arminius you know we could get lost in all this so just if we can as we're going through this letter to try to be in the mindset of these Thessalonians that, that did not have the wealth of information and knowledge like we have today. So let's dive right in and see this passage here in Romans chapter, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians, I don't know why I said Romans. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you and our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake." So that is the word of God before us on the podcast today. So let's just take a look at the first mentioning of two companions that Paul lists here. Right off the bat, his salutation reflects, again, a very common Hellenistic opening to a letter. That's important because we have to understand the nature in which Paul is conveying this in the stylistic or the genre in which he's he's writing. So this is important because, again, in this and this audience he's writing to, these formalities, these salutations was very common to them. Okay? So this letter, like when we say, dear so-and-so, hope you're doing well, you know, writing this letter to report on some things or to see how you're feeling, whatever. You know, these common salutations. And so when Paul's referring to this, he's listing two companions, Silvanus and Timothy. Now, remember, Sil- Silvanus is Silas. And he's more known for being Silas than Silvanus. And he was a prophet. If you remember, you go back to Acts 15, verse 22, Acts 15, verse 27, verse 32, and verse 40. So just go to Acts 15, and you'll see several times the mentioning of Silas. And so he was a prophet who belonged to the Jerusalem council. And if you go back to remember that whole incident that was happening with circumcision, so it was roughly around that time when we're kind of putting a chronological order together. Paul had already been ministering in his first missionary journey, so Silas was not with him. Uh, he was; They were not in connection. There, there's not a companionship. And it wasn't until after the first missionary journey, going into a second, meeting Silas, who was part of the Jerusalem Council, and helping him and Barnabas to to fight against the Judaizers who were advancing, the, the, you know, that was the circumcised party, circumcision in order to be saved. Silas was, was, was a very insightful individual. And so he was selected by Paul as a traveling companion for his second missionary journey. And you see that going from Acts 15, verse 39, all the way into Acts chapter 18, verse 22. Now, Timothy is more famous, if you will. Uh, We know him because there's two letters that Paul wrote to him. He never wrote one to Silas. That's the inspired word of God. And Timothy, in his backstory, we know him to be the son of a Greek father. But there's no mentioning of his father um, being alive while you know, when Paul you know, meets Timothy. There's reports that Paul receives about Timothy. We know that he comes from a Jewish mother. 
So he's a half-breed, right? He's biracial, that we would say today. And Timothy, like Silas, he joins Paul's inner circle. We see this in Acts 16. And he was resent to Thessalonica to resolve a few conflicts that we will see later in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 7. So here's what's important. Paul had limited time in Thessalonica as we read in Acts, you know, about in Acts 17. So he wasn't able to share a whole lot with him. Timothy goes back after the riots, the persecution. So, so Timothy is risking his life for the Thessalonians. And Paul knows that as well. Paul risked his life numerous times and eventually was beheaded for his faith. But they, they, had their, they had made peace with God. They were doing what God had called them to do. And of course, like, like anywhere, wherever you're listening to this podcast, whatever church you're involved in, there are problems, there are conflicts, there are issues. Okay, we are stubborn people. We are prideful people. We are selfish people. We are sinful people. And so conflicts were arising. And one of the things that we're going to see throughout the letter, one of the confusions that was arising, which is very common even today in particular denominations or what maybe what's happening in your church, is there's a lot of uh, questions. There are a lot of questions that people are having, in this case, when Christ will return. And when there's confusion and there's not one primary interpretation that again can be used to support that answer and you know again in in the response of it comes from god's word they didn't have you guys god's word before them they're just debating through you know forms of creeds hymnals conversations uh maybe highlighted uh versions of teachings of jesus some of it was probably hijacked some of it was a bit distorted they had parabolical teachings uh, some of them were probably hearing a little bit of the Olivet Discourse. But this, remember, if Jesus rose from the dead and then 40 days after he ascended to heaven, gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, that's roughly no later than eighty thirty three, And this is eighty fifty fifty one. So we're talking less than 20 years removed. And so at this point, how much of Jesus's teaching has spread? So in, 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 in their case of Thessalonians, Paul is one of the first Again, not just Christians, but an apostle who devoted time to reason with them in the synagogues and in the marketplace. And so, of course, there's going to be a lot of confusion. Just like today, I was just in a meeting where, you know, there was with this whole Russian invasion stuff. A lot of people had never really considered, is, is Russia mentioned in the Bible? And, of course, there's a lot of different views that people have about pre-trib mid-trib and post-trib kind of stuff. And, you know, do we take this allegorically or do we take it literally? And so the same applies with Russia, you know, and so there's a, could be a lot of confusion about that. So take the doctrinal issue and you're going to have confusion. You're going to have different camps and different interpretations. And that's certainly the case you guys hear in this letter that, that Paul's going to be addressing a lot of key issues that they're having. And what's important is that Timothy's the one that's conveying these issues to Paul. Timothy was one on the ground. Timothy was witnessing this. Timothy was the elder to these people. Young, but man, this, did this guy certainly learn a lot being under the tutelage of Paul. And so when he's writing to the church of the Thessalonians, notice he says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So note here that when Paul's addressing the Thessalonians, he does refer to them as a church or as a body. The Greek word here is ekklesia, 
right, is very commonly known to refer to a congregation or an assembly of believers. But it also conveys, and this is a very strategic chosen word, because it refers to called out people uh, uh, of God. And it's and in here, it's primarily made up of Gentiles who belong to Christ. This is important because if you go back to our study in the book of Acts and you saw with, with uh, Peter in Acts 10 starting to reach the Gentile people, then then the council in Acts 15 is refuting against circumcision, but also a, a conglomeration primarily led by Jewish people, the apostles who were Jewish, Paul being one who was born out of due time, as we know, they began to reach the Gentiles. And this was good news. Remember, one of the uh, things that the Jerusalem church sent Paul and Barnabas out on the road into the you know, Mediterranean uh, uh, world was to validate these confirmations, these conversions. And many of them were Gentiles. And so they're accepting this. And so this is what's important is that he's identifying that these churches are exploding in this region of paganism and they're primarily made up of Gentile people. Now let's go back to Acts 17 for a minute and just get some context as I mentioned to it in the introduction and verses two and four specifically because Luke gives a brief account of when Paul was there establishing the church in Thessalonica. In Acts 17 verse two, now when they had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So here you have an explosion, a, a different demographic. He's ministering to the Jews, right? And he's persuading them. He's joined there by Silas. And notice it did a great many, and a great many of the devout Jews, including women. So even for Paul, this was a different diverse group of people hearing the gospel and this is beautiful, you guys, because when he was doing this and then there, and then hence writing, um, you know, a year or two later to, to them, he refers to them as the church. He's talking about Jews. He's talking about Gentiles primarily because the city's made up mainly of Gentiles. So think about your zip code, you know, what kind of ethnic groups are typically within that zip code. Uh, three, he's writing to women. Now, remember how, uh, exclusive the synagogue was that leadership was in that in that day not only for the Greeks but primarily for the Jews you know women were considered second-class citizens but yet here the church is all of us and we saw that in Galatians chapter 3 28 when there's neither Jew nor Greek male nor female barbarian Scythian you know we're all one in Christ we are the body of believers God the Father, right, and our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is beautiful because he's presenting the Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son. He's also introducing this term grace, which was a foreign concept. And it only made sense through an experiential relationship. And keros is the Greek word that Paul kind of plays off of because he's talking about something that's unmerited, that's 
beyond our understanding. It's different than mercy, but it's in context of an experiential relationship. And, and what he's conveying here, when he when he says, God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and grace to you and peace, we, again, we wouldn't be saved if, if it wasn't for the unmerited favor, this, this gift that we don't deserve. And this experiential, experiential relationship we have with Christ is because of the sacrifice that he gave you and me. So, so an unmerited favor, a blessing is, is being bestowed here saying, I'm writing you this, I'm in this occupation, conveying this to you guys because of the unconditional love of Christ. And this word peace is irene uh, in Greek. It captures the wholeness, the freedom and the tranquility that you have in Christ. So on one hand, grace, keros, we have this unmerited favor, this blessing that's been given to us, bestowed upon us. And in receiving that unmerited right favor that we don't deserve, that we cannot earn, we experience the greatest freedom, the greatest tranquility ever. Think about that. And that's how he opens up his letter. And so then he transitions in verse two, giving thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Let me just pause and challenge you guys on a couple things as I've been challenged. Number one, how fervently are you praying for people in your life like Paul was praying for the Thessalonians? Two, are you grateful for them? You see, right away, Paul gives thanksgiving for the way the Thessalonians receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does this by listing what we refer to as the triad. What does that mean? Well, he mentions three key things. You'll see this listed throughout his, the Pauline letters that is, listed out with, within Paul's writings. And in, in one of the most famous passages of this is 1 Corinthians 13. And so this faith, love, and hope we see in Romans 5, we see in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, we see in Galatians 5, 5 through 6. This trio are affirmations, okay? Faith, hope, and love. This was a communal teaching in the early church, which by the way, when, when I have some discussions with some people out there when I travel and, and, and certainly have had this conversation with different denominations of pastors and clergy, this is one reason why I am in favor of liturgical things that are implemented, if you will, that we do utilize and take a congregation of people through of affirmations. And there's a reflective portion of faith, there's a reflective por portion of hope, and there's a reflective portion of love. Because that really ties into what Paul does in his letters. And oftentimes when we're putting services together, we have formalities. We have a service that has a given point of time. So here's a designated point of time. And then we fill that with, again, the standard opening, songs, greeting, maybe a prayer, an offering, teaching, and then however you, you arrange those. But that's the bulk of it. And then a benediction. And again, that, that's great. But within that structure, how are we conveying faith, hope, and love and worship and you know, reciting a creed, uh, something liturgical that is giving um, allegiance to what scripture teaches, particularly in Pauline doctrine, that's affirming these three affirmations, right? And uniformity, that is. So think about that just in your church structure. 
The other thing here, here when he's when he's referring to these this the triad, notice how he refers to faith as a work, the work of faith. Now again, if you go back to our study of the book of James, you know, faith without works is dead. So faith is active. It it produces fruit. Go back to James 2, 14 through 26. So that's key where Paul was recognizing through what he was receiving from Timothy that the Thessalonians, even though there's conflict among them, and there will be, we're human, but he's seeing that they are working out their faith. They are active. They are sharing their faith. And in that, they have a steadfastness of hope. Not just they have hope, they have a steadfastness. That literally carries the idea of this confidence in their hope that they have in Christ's return. Now, this is something Paul will go into greater detail in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now, the basis of the triad, faith, hope, and love, has Christ at the center. Isn't that interesting? So again, it goes back to what I was telling you guys liturgically in a church structure. When we affirm those three affirmations in uniformity, the centerpiece is Christ. Jesus is the object of faith, of hope, and of love. Remember, we wouldn't have any of this if it wasn't for grace, the unmerited favor. And he says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Ah, there it is. Now, this is the only time that Paul uses this term chosen in the sense of describing their appointed salvation. So when God chose us before the foundation of the world, it's a different term. And, and it's not that it has a different outcome, but the way in which he's referring to us, or in this case, the Thessalonians, which is still applicable to us who are dwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, who are born again Christians, it's describing their appointed salvation. So the church is commonly been referred to as the elect. So then Romans 8.33, Colossians 3.12. And so a, a term that was once reserved exclusively for Israel, notice he was so specific about ecclesia, the church, and he's so specific about you being the chosen people that you, that he, that God has chosen you, that is. He's, he's pointing out the exclusivity of, of Israel. And there are several undergirding uh, properties, right, to Paul's explanation of election. Uh, number one, notice, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. That points to the fact that God, these, again, these, this is key in doctrine uh, when we're studying this, particularly when we just looked at, when we look at soteriology, for example, when we look at the study of salvation. God is the originator and the initiator of it, of salvation, that is. And that's important to understand. So when God chose us, this was his plan for you and for me. Jesus is the atoner for salvation. There is no other. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Three, the Holy Spirit is the siller of salvation, meaning when this when the deal is done, one, we have Father, Son, Son. He graciously and sacrificially lays down his life for us. He's the sinless sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he pays the price. The Holy Spirit comes in us and seals us as a guarantee, as a deposit, meaning it is done. There's no more, uh, there's, no, there's nothing else necessary to seal the deal, if you will. Fourth, the elect, the chosen ones, are those who freely receive the gift of salvation and maintain a holy life. They bear fruit. 
And so when he says, because our gospel came to you, not in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with co- full conviction, by the way, and I want to mention this, not in my notes, but this verse here, verse five of first Thessalonians one really points to the demonstration of people responding with great conviction, the, 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 the gospel message in a way that I think in the Western world, we tend to not only overlook, but we don't biblically and properly demonstrate what Paul's conveying here. And therefore, as a result, and I'm not saying this is always the intention of the person who's a camp speaker or the pastor who gives a altar call and people come forward and we, you know, or somebody raises their hand and then we just, we give out those numbers and said, 42 people came to Christ. Well, you know what? The reality is that's not true more than likely in every instance, in every case, because what oftentimes happens is the gospel um, isn't coming in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction a lot. There's formalities, you know, repeat after me and these pleasantries and, you know, raise your hand, come forward. And, you know, the, you know, there's, you know, this emotive experience sometimes, and it's maybe not full conviction. Now, I don't know beyond that, and neither do you, none of us can identify every case and say, you know, was that a genuine conversion because a person raised their hand or came to the altar call? And I, and I, and let me just say this on the podcast, I'm not belittling those things, but working with young people through the years who said, I, you know, came to the altar call, therefore I'm saved. That's where the confusion comes in. Somebody told them to repeat this prayer and they repeated it. Uh, doesn't mean they're saved. Remember to be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Okay. That's what the Bible says. So I get it where it's not because of an altar call, not because you raise your hand, but you have to believe in your heart. And notice Paul says in, in, in knowing that they are the chosen one, knowing that they're brothers loved by God, knowing that they're the church, because the gospel came to them, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So power, Holy Spirit, and, and full conviction. So the next time when you're seeing the gospel being presented, we have to pray that it's done in the power of God. It's done in the, in the movement of the Spirit and with full conviction. And the full conviction aspect is, again, people who, that word is uh, plero. Foria, if I'm saying that correctly, it, it details the freedom and certainty that had been delivered um, in the gospel message. Okay. So it's not a false gospel. It has been delivered with certainty. That's important for us to understand. So God, as I mentioned, who is the originator of salvation, uh, the Bible says, matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, he's the gospel of God. Uh, or the gospel of Christ, chapter three, verse two. So that's the point is when the gospel is being preached, it's the gospel of God, you guys. It's the gospel of Christ. So Paul, he emphasizes that it was the gospel that came to the Thessalonians, not him. This is God's message. God is the originator. God is the initiator. Christ is the sacrifice. The Holy Spirit is the sealer. And so he lists several confirmations. So again, let me just, let's dive a little bit deeper to this so that we don't get fooled by a lot of these false conversions because of altar calls. And again, I'm not denying, not saying altar calls are wrong. We just have to pray when these moments come that it's done in these three 
uh, confirmations. One, this power is dunamai. This power is beyond the world's capability to create. Remember, Jesus promised the, the arrival of the Holy Spirit to come on his disciples on the church in Acts 1.8. As I mentioned with his full convi- uh, conviction, uh, that's certainty, okay? That's certainty. And this proved to be among you, this is what's another thing that's so important is that Paul lived an exemplary life that reflected Christ. So he knew that they had a legit model. He knew that his companions, Silas and Timothy, were a model to them. They were men of integrity and they built rapport in the city. And Paul will go on in chapter two and defend all the way into chapter three, verse 10, his ministry. And so when we consider the gospel of Christ in our lives and as it's being taught and preached in our churches, let us pray, you guys, that there's power, there's conviction, and there are those people through the power of the Holy Spirit who are proving it, who are living it out among people around us. Because as I conclude, you guys, on you know this message in First Thessalonians 1, we got to consider all the people today that are not seeing the power of God, uh, how very few people around us uh, have conviction. And how often in environments we quench, we hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then we don't see a lot of people who are, who are daily, um, you know, not prominent figures, but just dads and moms and brothers and sisters who are just living Christ, who are modeling it faithfully and are not compromising in the world today. So I pray, my friends, that this message today, as we explored this, the first opening verses, verses one through five in First Thessalonians one, that you will go in the grace and peace of Jesus Christ and that you recognize and know that you are uh, the chosen ones of Christ and that you will have a steadfast hope in the return and knowing that Christ will return one day. So thanks you guys for listening. Until next time, keep standing strong in the word of God.